Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2. We actually finished off the first chapter last week. It's short. Um, the newest addition to the family, uh, Jude Thomas Owens, was born on Tuesday. That's grandchild uh, number seven. Uh, so my uh, wife is uh, in Colorado right now playing with grandson. Um, and if you remember last week, I mentioned my wife was home with the grandkids. That's who she was home with last week, why she wasn't here. That, that was the, uh, those are all the Texas grandkids. Now, I will say, she only had all five of them for 20 minutes, okay? Anyway. Huh? Well, I thought she had done real well getting them all lined up on the sofa to take the picture. And I found out later that my daughter-in-law had shown up and helped arrange that picture. Three of those were hers, so my, my wife had help. <laughs> she said, no, I couldn't get five of them sitting still at the same time. It just wasn't going to happen. <sighs> Last week, we finished chapter one. And we finished chapter one with a series of conditional statements. If you remember what those are, it said, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, we lie. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, then he will forgive us. And then we spent a lot of time in verse three, of chapter 2, and we just really covered the first half of the verse. Verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And we had a long discussion last week about it, what it means to know something. If you remember, we talked about uh, the, the, the sources of knowledge, what it is that allows us to know things both in our postmodern age that we live in today, the pre-modern and the modern period. That was all last week's lesson. So today we get to the second half of verse 3. This is how we know that we know if we keep his commandments. And this idea is a minefield. And I began to touch on the minefield last week but I will just dive straight into it this week because we really can't escape it. The minefield is this. We believe, we understand that salvation is the free gift of Christ based on the finished work of Christ alone, not by works lest any man should boast. If you contributed to your salvation, if you contributed just this much, I guarantee you, you would start bragging about it. You know, I'm better than you because I contributed this much and you only contributed that much. You must be a wretched human being. But the scripture is very clear that we contribute nothing to our salvation. Salvation is based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But 
No, there is no but to that. But. <laughs> For by grace are you saved through faith, but that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But two verses later in Ephesians, it says, we are created to do good works that God has ordained for us to do. And here's the issue. If I start talking about good works, some of you are going to begin to think, ah, that's how I'm saved. In spite of the fact that I've just told you that's not how you're saved. But if I tell you that you are saved by grace, some of you are going to think, Good, I can live any way I want. It doesn't matter. Remember, that's Romans, the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. If sin abounds, grace abounds. Woohoo! If I sin more, I get more grace. And chapter 6 begins, heck no! That's a loose translation. The actual word is, God forbid! that you would think such a thing. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. We are being sanctified by grace. But out of love, we are to do the things that God commands us to do. This is how you know that you know him, that you keep his commandments. If you believe that you are saved, if you believe that you are saved and have no conception of trying to do that which God has asked us to do, then it should be a red flag warning that you are not what you think you are. I'm not going to judge the condition of your heart, but you should ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate to you whether or not the profession that you claim to have made was in fact a true profession of faith. This is how we know. This is not how we are saved. This is how that we know that we are saved. It is interesting because I spent a lot of time last week on the first half of this verse and touched briefly on the second half of it. And on Monday, I was looking at a uh, blog that I read occasionally, and they pointed to a question and answer session of some very well-known, esteemed pastors and theologians and the question posed to them was, do we get assurance of our faith by our works? And it was interesting. I mean, it's only five minutes long. I mean, they talked about different answers. The assurance of our faith is, are the promises of God. God says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But if you want to feel that assurance, you need to have some level of understanding and doing what God has asked you to do. Do you understand 
the minefield. Do you understand that if I am sitting here talking to a group of believers and unbelievers, that the unbeliever is going to begin to think, oh, I have to keep the commandments. And the believer is going to begin to think, oh, I don't... You see the problem, right? But the verse is very unambiguous. This is how we know that we know that we have a relationship with him if we keep his commandments. You know, we talked about conditional statements last week. If this, then this. You know, I make conditional statements all the time, some of which might be true. Some of which are just my opinion. But when God makes a conditional statement we probably ought to rely on it being true. Let's keep going. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Remember, John is the elder statesman of the church at this point, probably the only living of the original apostles. And he is giving instructions to the church at large, and he says, keep the commandments. If you say you are with Christ and don't keep his commands, you're a liar. And not only are you a liar, there's probably not even any truth in what you believe. Because you believe that, well, you got saved by some other way. You believe that, that salvation did not bring a transformation in your life. You believe that you were saved, but you shouldn't be expected to do anything about it. And he says, you are a liar. But whoever keeps his word, that is, does what God asks him to do, in him truly the love of God is perfected. What do you mean the love of God? It is interesting because the commentaries have a discussion about this. Is this our love for God or is this God's love for us? And the general answer is yes. You knew that was coming, right? You've been in my class before. How is the love of God perfected? Because the love of God that he bestows upon us is perfected when we work out in our everyday life what God has put into our life. And our love is perfected when we spread the love of God to those around us. How do we Show the love of God to those around us by keeping his commandments. You go, wait a minute. I thought the commandments were a lot of thou shalt's and thou shalt nots. Well, yes. But do you remember when Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, all heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. And notice he did not say this these two commandments, replace these commandments. What he says is these two commandments summarize, they contain all these other commandments. 
How do we love the Lord our God with all our soul, mind, spirit, strength? I got them out of order. How do we do that? Well, have no other God before me. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Do not follow after idols. That's how we do it. These two things aren't separate from each other. How do we love our neighbor? Well, you don't covet his stuff. You don't take his wife. You don't kill him. And you don't lie to him. It's pretty basic stuff. Except for the fact in our, back to last week's lesson, in our postmodern age, when we do not believe in the realm of truth in any absolute sense, you know, I, I begin to think that if it helps my relationship to lie to you, well, so what? And if you know if I'm committing adultery, but I'm doing it because of love, it's okay. No, it's not. It isn't. Our love is perfected when we show others the love that God has shown us. How do we do that? By keeping God's word, by keeping his commandments. It is interesting because we begin for maybe the first time to see a concept that we're going to see for the rest of this chapter, and that is love. More about that in just a moment. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, for the rest of this chapter, there is a lot of reference to he. And once again, the commentaries kind of get a little bit confused at times. Is this he, Jesus, or is this he, God the Father? And one commentary just comes out and says, you know, in John's mind, yes. Because doing that which God the Father would have you to do is doing that which Jesus would have you do. And doing what Jesus would have you do is what God the Father would have you do because they are both God. Now. Given the fact that he says, walk with us, I'm going to say in this particular case, it's going to be Jesus. John had physically walked with Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? Jesus had physically walked with John. Isn't that cool? This idea of walking with someone is not that you and I happen to be walking in the same direction down the sidewalk, so we are walking kind of together. No, it carries with it the idea of following their life. It is following their habits, following their way of being. We are to walk the walk that Jesus walked. So, that leads us to the question, how did Jesus live his life? Well, we know the answer to that because he tells us the answer to that. My will 
is to do the will of the one who sent me. At every moment of every day, Jesus' one goal was to do the will of the Father. That's how he walked. Now, I become a believer, or at least I think I do, but you know, I've got some really strong habits that I kind of like. I kind of like going this direction and that direction. I kind of like doing my own thing, being my own person, being autonomous, being free to do whatever I want to do. You know, I'll take the will of God and I'll take my will and I'll try to find that sweet spot intersection of the two so I can do enough of his will that I look good to y'all and I can continue to do my will because, hey, that's what I want to do. And the question is, in doing so, am I walking the walk that Jesus would have me to walk? And the answer that John very clearly gives is no. I'm just not doing that. Remember, John is the elder statesman. John is the grandfather telling the grandson the way it is. Now, in our day and age, the grandfather telling the grandson may not mean a whole lot. But this is the voice of wisdom telling you this is the way it is. And I might add, the Holy Spirit's whispering in John's ear to tell you this. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, is it a new commandment or is it an old commandment? Can we have a show of hands? What is the old commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. John, throughout his written word that we know of, has been very clear about this. Go read, uh, what is it, the 14th chapter of the book of John, where he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, the Spirit is coming, you better follow the commands of God. The Spirit is our helper, you ought to do what God tells you to do. And this intersperses for the whole chapter for about five verses, he says, you need to show your love to God by following his commandments. He is not telling you anything here that he hasn't already told them. The fact that we are to follow God's word is not a new commandment. But he's going to tell us the times are changing. The times are changing because the light 
has come into the world. What is that light? Jesus. The times are changing because the light has been given to us in Jesus and the darkness, this is John chapter 1, and the darkness hates it. We saw this in last week's lesson. And he is going to compare and contrast to us the idea that we are to walk in the light. And we are not to walk in the darkness. That's what he's going to talk about. That's what he has been talking about. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light that demonstrates the holiness of God. We talked about this two weeks ago. God is holy. That means he is set apart from sin. The light, God, Jesus, has entered the earth. John walked with him. I mentioned that a while ago, didn't I? John walked with him, and he knows that that light is spreading. And we are to follow the light. So the commandment is not new. We have always been required to follow the will of God. Now, we in our rebellious state said, no, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. But that's been God's commandment to us. But now... The light has entered the world. Things are changing. And we, in our understanding of Jesus, we see how the light works in human form. And that human form is Jesus Christ. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Here's another one of those conditional statements. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Okay, we are not going to have a show of hands. How many of you hate your brother? Well, let's ask the question first. Who's the brother? Right? This is the same question that Jesus was asked. Because, you know, my goal in life would be to shrink the category of who my brother is. I have one biological brother, and he's enough trouble, okay? So I'll take this verse and I'll say, okay, I do not hate my biological brother. I'm off the hook. But do you remember what Jesus did when asked, who is my brother? Because he had made the comment, love your brother as yourself, whatever. And he was asked, okay, who's my brother? Do you remember what he said? He launches into this story. This good Jew is going somewhere and he gets mugged on the way. And he's lying there beside the road. And another good Jew comes by, and that's dirty, and he walks to the other side of the road. And another good Jew comes by, and that's a dirty by, and he walks to the other side of the road. And the wicked, evil, horrible Samaritan comes by. And he sees this man in his distress. 
He binds his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to the inn. He says, innkeeper, take care of him. Here's some cash. And if there's anything more that you need, I'll be back next week and pay you for it. And Jesus turns to his good Jewish audience and he says, who acted like the brother? Well, it was clear. The wicked, evil, horrible, wretched Samaritan. What is Jesus' point? We need to broaden our definition of who the brother is. That means I have to put up with you. Oh, gosh. If you say you hate your brother, you're not walking in the light. Who is the brother? Well, let's take the easy answer. No, the second easy answer. The first easy answer is my biological because that's easy. At a minimum, we're talking about those who are also followers of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was doing his job and they came up to him and said, your mother and brothers are outside. He turned to the disciples, not just the 12, but all the people there. And he says, here are my brothers. Wow. At a minimum, at a minimum, if you hate your brother, if there is a Christian who you do believe is a Christian and you hate them, what does it say in the Sermon on the Mount? You're bringing your gift and you realize you have something against your brother. Leave your gift. I like that point. Leave your gift and go be reconciled and then come back and present your gift. He tells you to leave the gift because he knows that if you take it with you, you probably won't come back. Just saying. We, as a community of believers, are to be reconciled. We, as a community of believers, are not to hate each other. You go, wait a minute. I don't hate anybody in here. Yeah. Some of you are a little questionable. I've told you because it's one of my favorite stories in the world. In one of Chuck Colson's books about the church, he has a chapter entitled, the right fist of Christian fellowship. Long story short, in the church service, at the end, in the church service, the deacons get into a fist fight with the pastor. And they are all hauled before the Jewish judge who says, your church may allow this, but the state of Massachusetts doesn't. You think this doesn't happen, but it does. If you say you're walking in the light, but you hate your brother, it isn't going to happen. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It is interesting, this idea of stumbling. What causes you to stumble? Well, you ever walk around in the dark? Okay. What causes you to stumble in the dark. Well, just about anything. 
Okay, if it's dark, you'll trip over the furniture, you'll trip over the toy that the child left out, you'll trip over just normal stuff that in the light you would not give a moment's notice to because you would just step around it. In the darkness, though, in the darkness that is demonstrated by the hating of your Christian brother, you begin to stumble over everything. You know, I have difficulty with one of you. And pretty soon, it starts affecting what I'm teaching. Because I begin to think I need to teach to show you there's something wrong with you. Do you, do you really know what I usually do? I teach those things that show me that I'm what's wrong with me. But if I'm stumbling around in the dark, I am going to begin to fall into just a lot of stuff. That's just true. I'm going to start making decisions not based on godly ideas because I can't see them because I'm in the dark. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This makes sense. We talk about physical darkness and we talk about spiritual darkness. Physical darkness, you've probably experienced at some, life, at some point in your life. Probably not as much as your ancestors did. I mean, prior to the modern day, when the sun went down, it was dark. You know, you might have had one candle inside your little peasant house, but for the most part, it was dark. That's why you didn't go out. It was physically dark. But what he's talking about here is spiritual darkness. And in the same way that you can't visually see in physical darkness, you can't spiritually see in spiritual darkness. There are things in the scripture that you just don't see. Wait a minute, I read the words. I can use a dictionary to understand the words. I know what it says. No. You're just understanding the words. It has always amazed me. There are lots, I don't know how many, but lots of biblical scholars who have no belief in God at all. I mean, they'll tell you that. They are reading the scripture like they would read any other ancient book. You know, I can read the works of Shakespeare without believing that Hamlet ever existed or not. Or King Lear or Macbeth or anybody else. It's just a story and I'm analyzing it. I'm learning truth about the human condition or something. But it's not the word of God. It's just a book. And there are lots of people like that. They are professors at major universities. They are aware of the words, 
but spiritually they are blind. The next three verses are kind of interesting because it's almost like a poem or something. I am writing, and it repeats itself. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, uh, scholars have tried to figure out some reason for this order and even to try to figure out who he's referring to. Is he actually talking to children and fathers and young men? Well, if you've noticed in this book already, he talks to all of us as children, everybody. And it's not just that he's the elder statesman, although he is. As a tour, tour, term of endearment, he says, my children, young children, he talks to us that way. So it is quite possible that he's talking to all of us in this passage as children of God, as fathers, as fathers who are responsible for others, as young men in our youth. I mean, it's talking about all of us at some point in our lives. The other question is, are these uh, biological age distinctions, that is, some of you are older than me, I'm older than my children, my children, okay, is it a biological age or is, a, is it a spiritual maturity? You know, right, that there are 80-year-old guys who just become Christians, and they're young in the faith. You know that, right? Okay? So, which is it? And I'll take the easy answer that I usually do and say yes to all of that. He's telling us what we have in God. Let's look through it. I'm writing to you little children, that's us, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Let's say that I'm a new Christian. What's the first thing I need to know? My sins are forgiven. What was it that dragged me to Christ to begin with? The acknowledgement that I'm lost. I need someone to tell me, your sins are forgiven. Wow, that's great. And this is whether you're a young biological child or a young spiritual person or if you're an 80-year-old or a 90-year-old who's been walking with Christ for 60 years, you still sometimes need somebody to whisper in your ear, yeah, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but you know, I sometimes reflect on those things that have happened. And I'm going, how, how could I do something so stupid? And you're going, wait a minute, 40 years ago? Well, yeah, but it's, I still think about it. And we as 
adults need someone to whisper in our ears, yeah, your sins are forgiven. Remember last week's lesson? If you say you have no sin, you are a liar. We've all sinned. How do we know that we have a relationship with Jesus? We keep his commandments. But some days I don't feel like I've kept his commandments. I got a little snappy with someone. Had a few thoughts that I shouldn't have. Did a few things I shouldn't do. Oh my gosh, what do I do? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And that voice whispers in our ear, your sins are forgiven. All of them. Yeah, but God can't forgive that one. I did something in my life that was so bad, God can't forgive that one. Yes, he can. The blood of Jesus Christ is adequate. This was last week's lesson. The blood of Jesus Christ was adequate for all the sins that ever were. Don't think you're going to run out. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I realize that my sins are forgiven, but I need to continue to grow in my relationship with him. And here's the discussion that we had earlier. Is that Jesus? Yes. Is that God the Father? Yes. We grow. As we mature, we grow to know him more. That is an intellectual understanding of who God is. That is a practical understanding as we work that out in our daily lives. Remember, we need to walk like he walked. He walked in the light. We need to walk in the light. He did the will of the Father. We should do the will of the Father. As we mature, spiritually or physically, we learn more about who God is. You know? You're that new convert. You go, wow, Jesus saved me from my sins. That's great. But we begin to understand that God is bigger than just forgiving us of our sins. God's pretty big. He's holy. What in the world does that mean? Take 10 years to figure that one out. He's righteous. What does that mean? Take 10 years for that one too. What are we going to be doing in heaven? You know, heaven is for eternity, right? Just in case you didn't know, that's a long time. I'll tell you what we're going to be doing in heaven. We're going to be learning about God. But wait a moment. You know, it took me four years to get my undergraduate degree. And I was doing it part-time, so it did take me four years to get my master's degree. How long is it going to get, take me to get this PhD in God understanding? You know what? God is an infinite God. Trust me. There will always be something new to learn. But he tells us, you have known him who is from the beginning because you have overcome the evil one. Just to kind of tie this back to the discussion a while ago, you've learned, that's the darkness, 
which by the way, is overseen by the evil one, and you have learned that this is the light which is doing that which God would have you to do. Okay? I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you children because you know the Father. You have a relationship with God the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him. That's a repeat. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We have this basic idea, okay, and there's truth to this, that the youth are the strength to do things and the elderly are the wisdom to know what to do. And in my perfect world, this doesn't happen, but in my perfect world, you take the strength of the young and the wisdom of the elderly, and you put that together, and society turns out pretty well. He talks to the mature, and he says, you have overcome the evil one because you understand who the Father is. To the young men, he says, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Now, this is not a hard question. How do you get the Word of God to abide in you? Well, you come to class for 40 minutes once a week. Well, that helps. I'm glad you come. It's a good thing. If you want the Word of God to abide in you, you have to be acquainted with the Word of God. That's pretty simple, right? The average American thinks nothing of watching a two-hour show on TV or watching a three-hour movie or a three-hour football game. Nothing. And today, so that you can stream everything, you can binge watch and watch a whole year of a, you know, in 12 hours. We think nothing of that. But if I told you, and I'm not going to tell you, I would never tell you this. It's totally up to the Holy Spirit dealing with you. If I told you to read your Bible for an hour, you would think that was the most bizarre thing in the world. Why is that? Well, I'd love to be able to tell you, but it's going to be the next lesson. What is the next lesson? Do not love the world or the things in the world. What is the next lesson? We just love the world. The observation is we are to abide in the Word of God. We are to make the Word of God such a part of us that it permeates our pores. Guess what? You're not going to do that 40 minutes on Sunday. I'm glad you're here. You need to be here. The Word of God needs to be an integral part of our lives. Which brings us to next week's lesson. Well, the next lesson I'm going to teach. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Hmm. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would walk in the light 
I pray that we would abide in the word. I thank you, Lord, for the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.